Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, my guest is Miranda Nicholson, Senior Vice President of Human Resources at Formstack. Formstack is a workplace productivity solution that empowers anyone to digitize what matters, automate workflows, and fix processes, all without code. With a decade of experience managing corporate HR activities, Miranda currently leads the acquisition, onboarding, and retention of current and future Formstack employees. We had a, a really great wide-ranging conversation that covered a, a lot of how she and Formstack lead the people side of their business. We get into building a remote culture, not just having remote employees, but what it really means to be a remote workforce. We get into thinking of managers as coaches and how to build that skill and the importance of setting boundaries. And Miranda has some really good suggestions for how she manages her own boundaries and how she manages her own calendar. Uh, there are a ton of nuggets in here for anyone who is leading the people side of a business or any leader who has to engage with people in their business activities. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Here is Miranda Nicholson. And we are live. Miranda, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm excited to jump into this. It's fun to talk to somebody in your position who's uh, leading HR for a company and kind of get into the weeds of, of how you do what you do, how you've built what you've built and, and how you're perpetuating that going forward. I guess to start out, would love to have you just, let's just like start at the beginning and have you pitch Formstack. Yeah. So uh, very prepared to do that. We just, <laughs> we just came off of a, a couple day virtual conference, we uh, are in the middle of a rebrand uh, launch. And so talking through with marketing and things. So here we go. Formstack's mission is to help customers reimagine their world of work. And what that means is taking redundant processes, taking antiquated processes, paper processes, and making them work for you. So a great example, HR, uh, we are probably at the heart and center of paperwork at an organization and a lot of organizations, quite frankly. And, and so we use Formstack quite often to reimagine the performance management process. We use, uh, we use it for employee sentiment. We've created our own employee engagement survey. And so we're looking at ways to get data from our customers, which are our Formstackers, our internal um, employees, and put that information to work. So Formstack helps businesses collect and act on data that makes sense for their business and helps them grow as an organization. So essentially digitizing paperwork, processes, forms, that type of thing, 
and then organizing that data to make it usable. Yeah. And we have a suite of products that help people do that, that connect together. So it starts with a form. You need to sign a form. You need to integrate that form into other, say your, um, your CRM or what have you to get that information where it needs to go. So there's a whole host of integrations and products that work together to truly make that an end-to-end process that works for not only the end user, but uh, we'll call it the administrator of the process. Okay. And what are some of the other like just stats of the company? When was it founded? How big are you? Just that kind of stuff, just to set the stage for people on what we're talking about here. Absolutely. So Formstack is uh, 13, 14 years old. We sit at uh, just under 250 employees and our uh, revenue is right around 40 million. And you've been there how long? Seven years. Seven years. Okay. Yeah. And that's good, just sort of level set as we get into this, because I have a lot of questions about how you've organized the people, culture, remote work is something we definitely talk a lot about. And so it's good, I think, just to get some of that context in there as we we jump into that. What would you say makes Formstack unique from a a work experience standpoint? Sure. So when I came on board uh, seven years ago, we had two remote employees. And that started with our founder, sorry, not our founder, our CEO uh, met a developer in Poland and hired him. Uh, then a couple of years later, he decided, our CEO decided that he wanted to move uh, back to his home state of Oklahoma to support his wife's career. So they moved, that became our second remote employee and the rest is history. We very slowly, once we opened that up, we found that from a recruiting attraction perspective, it was a lot easier to go where the talent was and not necessarily rely on a local employee base. And so over the years, we transitioned to this remote first uh, sort of mentality in the organization. And what I mean by that is we, we had about 60% remote employees and 40% that were considered local. So with a couple offices, those were people that were close to those offices, but were not ever required to go in. Uh, to the officer report into the office. And so we had to develop this mindset that was we're all remote to each other. Uh, And that changes the way you do business internally. It changes the uh, conversations you have. It changes the way you initiate a meeting. It changes the way you manage. And so thinking about it from that perspective, I think Formstack is unique in that we operate with a high, high degree of autonomy. We hire you. We expect that you know how to get your job done. And we expect you to tell us when things aren't working, when they are working, when you run into conflict, you're able to have those conversations. Managers become more coaches versus micromanagers or dictators. And so for from our perspective, we've got people from all varying backgrounds and different time periods in their careers. And they're able to come in and operate because they feel empowered to get their work done and that they're uh, the trust that they feel from the leadership team and even their frontline managers is really strong from day one. I've, I just had question after question after question run through my head as you were going through <laughs> that whole thing. Let's, starting at the beginning with the CEO yeah. deciding that he was going to go back and rather than leave the organization was going to stay on and turn this into a, a remote organization. Mm-hmm. Did that happen right away? Was it like, I'm going to go do this and therefore we're going to let everybody do this? Or was it phased in in some process? What what was that shift like? 
if you know our CEO, there's not a lot of what we'll call planning. Uh, he loves the gray area, right? And so from, from his perspective, it is, I'm going to do this. If someone else wants to do it, they can, and we'll figure it out. I came on as an office manager. And so uh, about, I don't know, maybe two months after I started, we started to see people leave and, and relocate, not le- uh, leave the organization, but relocate. He was the springboard that, that gave people permission to, I'll go back to our, our mission, reimagine their world of work, right? So how are they, do they need to support their family? Do they want to move to Mexico? Do they want to, you know, do they want to experience different parts of the world and, and be able to maintain their job? And And we allowed them to do that without, any parameters. Now we learned along the way what worked and what didn't as we started to uh, open that up more, as we started to hire more uh, remote people. And I would say that's kind of how we staggered or phased it, which isn't which isn't really answering. <laughs> it's not really a yes or no answer, but it is how we approached it. No, I think that is a good answer. One question on that. When you found those people who were moving away, was it that they just seamlessly were able to continue their work or did they suddenly become more effective or was there maybe even sort of a dip as they figured it out, but then they, they kind of got there. We'll call it an acclimation period. And I would say there was a tolerance that came along with that, right? Some people were moving to different time zones. For example, we're, you know, we're in Indiana and we had someone move to California and one of our standing meetings is at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. So that's 7 a.m. Uh, when you're on the West Coast. And so there's a little bit of acclimation there. And they, uh, this person decided to shift their hours and work you know, seven to three versus working a nine to five. I would say working remote takes the right person regardless the phase of the company. And we learned and they learned very quickly if they could do that or not. And I would say in both instances at the very beginning of our move to remote working. Uh, Both of those individuals that I speak of were in manager type positions. And so I think that made it a little bit easier. They were already autonomous, already highly productive, already um, self-disciplined. That helped us inform how we needed to think about hiring and allowing for people who may be less seasoned to transition into remote. You may have just answered, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. So what makes a good remote employee or not a good remote employee, but like what makes somebody able to do that effectively versus when is that ineffective? I will say it starts with a little bit of self-awareness, which is every person, when you say, would you like to work from home? They say, yeah. I would. I'd love to work from home because I want flexibility, because I want um, autonomy, because I don't like the commute. All of those factors that sort of um, make remote working very enticing, they mean different things to different people. And so if you are self-aware enough to know that working from home creates a whole slew of challenges that you need to work through from day one or to implement from day one, uh, that makes a good remote worker. People who think working from home means I'm sitting on my couch watching Netflix and checking emails every once in a while, not a great remote worker, right? Flexibility, same thing. Flexibility to one person may mean I want to work a varied schedule. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to work a lot the first three days of the week and not a lot the last two days of the week. And that may not work for your department. And so that's where 
along with self-awareness, we, we screen and actively coach on over-communicating. And I think every organization will say over-communication is great. And, you know, the more we learn, the, the more we hear, the more we know. But I think in a remote world where you're not able to look over and say, hey, I have a question for you. You've got to proactively talk about your day. You've got to proactively talk about when things aren't working or they are working. Um, And that can be screened out through the hiring process, but it's also very easy to discover if we bring someone on board who may be struggling with remote work. So what does that screening process look like? Or what do those conversations look like when you're bringing somebody on board to make sure that they've actually thought through what that means? So some of it is we actually will will ask the question, do you have experience working with or on remote teams? I think that um, that that starts a conversation that leads to their communication style. It leads to the challenges that they saw, maybe even in working with remote teams that may not follow that over communication sort of guiding principle. We look at the hiring process. Do they respond to emails in a timely manner? Are they asking questions? Are they excited? How do they punctuate? Um, our application has a list of, of questions that you know someone saying NA or not having information about the organization is definitely reason for us to decline uh, that person. And so it, it's a it's a whole slew of things I think that over time, we've gotten really good at spotting when it's not working really quickly in the interview process and having a conversation and or declining that that candidate. This is a random question, but how much does writing skills factor into that? Because you mentioned like punctuation, something, some of that stuff. How closely do you look at their ability to communicate in text? It's written in the job description as a requirement, um, you know, exemplary oral and written communication, especially when you get into varied time zones and things of that nature, you have, you have to rely on written communication to get your job done. We have um, a group of contractors that live in Poland and that's a six hour time difference. And so for them, a lot of how they get their job done is in text-based communication. I would say, again, yeah, we look at it's also kind of a ding in the in, a, in the application process. Very often, it's farm stack instead of form stack, and those kinds of things where you're not just taking another glance through and making sure what you've said is clear is definitely a warning for us that something we need to dig into should we pursue that candidate. Yeah, and it surprises me. Well, I guess it surprised me, and it doesn't. How many people just assume that because they can speak, they can write, and that that they don't view that as a skill that needs to be developed, especially early in a career. I was lucky enough that I sat next to and became very good friends with a colleague of mine in one of my first jobs, and she was an English major. And so I would show her emails before I would send them out and say, what do you think about this? And she would, like a teacher, would just cover them in red ink and basically be like, you don't know how to communicate. Here, go try again. And then I'd go back to her. And I got to be much more effective at written communication and now try to help other people with that too. But it's amazing when you see people's emails and you're like, have you read this again? Did this is one, what this paragraph is one sentence. It shouldn't be one sentence. And the fact that the paragraph is like two pages long, it should be, it should be 10 paragraphs and you should never send 10 paragraphs. So let's edit this down. It's like, yeah, you just see all kinds of issues. You should never bullet 
bullet a list in uh, horizontally. I see that very frequently where instead of a vertical bulleted list, it's horizontal. And that doesn't, when you read it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And so yeah. that and I am, I love Grammarly. I plug the Grammarly. Uh, yeah, that I that has that. been, uh, I have it hooked into my email. Um, I am, you could ask my team in general. I am very, very particular about written uh, communication and proper grammar and typos and things of that nature because if a person's not talking to you every day, that's how that's their impression. That's their perception of you and your um, ability to get things done and their we'll call it desire to to work with you, uh, especially if you know that age old saying it could have been an email, that meeting could have been an email that if you're not able to email, then it has to be a meeting and that slows things down as well. So that, you know, we, we take all of those things into account when looking at written communication and and also oral communication. I, I can't tell you the number of times that we've all been in interviews where a person just prattles on and on and on. And uh, that again goes back to self-awareness, right? Self-awareness and communication skills are so closely married in our environment um, and skills that are necessary to get your job done. Are you helping build those skills out then within your own employee base? Like, is that coaching or is that part of your learning and development program? Um, It is not officially part of our learning and development program. What I will say is managers are coaching employees very early on and right when they notice things become a problem. So for us, because we're able to weed out a lot of the poor communicators early on, we managers aren't necessarily running into those problems unless someone's working on something that they've not worked on thus far. Uh, The other area that we've noticed recently that we're keeping an eye on and, and providing some resources to managers on is context. So employees will assume that when someone is communicating something to them, they have the whole picture. And when you get to be the size we are and you get to be, uh, you get to grow as, as quickly as we are, you want to get things off your plate. You want to get, you want to help people quickly. And oftentimes even two additional sentences in your communication make all the difference in the world. And so those are things that we're talking about, even at a leadership level, we're communicating in that virtual conference that we had last week. We're talking about it and we have a, a running cadence of emails that come from the leadership team each week. And so we're, we're making sure to hit on those things uh, as well. Just again, trying to create that sort of well-rounded, these are behaviors that you need to implement, not necessarily force them down people's throats. So how do you coach that balance between text communication, email communication, and picking up the phone and talking to somebody? Because there are some things that are just easier to talk through. And it's like, let's just do this in two minutes and it's going to save us 10 emails back and forth. So how, how do you coach that balance? So for my, I'll speak to my, for my team specifically, which is if it is a yes or no question or a one sentence answer, ask, ask me on Slack. If we can get through this really quickly, Slack is great. If it's something that's not urgent, but you still need me to act on it, please send me an email. If you have something urgent or you just need to get it, it's not necessarily urgent, but you want to get it off your plate or someone else is waiting for an answer, what have you, let's have a conversation. We usually will 
uh, Zoom in Slack. So we'll bring up a video and talk through it. Our CEO loves the phone. So I get phone calls all the time uh, from him just wanting to talk through something really quickly. And so I would say it kind of varies based on the leader, but largely that we will tell managers that same framework for communication. If it's not urgent, send an email. If you get through a couple emails and you don't have the answer you need, set a meeting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which sounds very simple, but oftentimes, especially now with Zoom fatigue, people are reluctant to do that. They want to communicate in writing. They want to, they don't want to be on a video. And sometimes that just goes on too long. And so kind of just getting to a point where, hey, this could be a three-minute conversation. Let's just get on a call and get it over with and you know go about our days. Yeah. I, I find that we get into trouble in our work with our clients when we are communicating via email something that has a high likelihood for confusion. It's good. Like email is good to lay out the groundwork, but then for things that are really confusing, it's good to talk through it and make sure that everybody understands. And absolutely, you know, or if you're passing information, you know, kind of down the line, sometimes that game of telephone, even via email can not be effective. Something can get lost or to your point, they don't have all the context. And so to just pick up the phone and say, Hey, I just want to make sure that you are understanding the same things that we're trying to say. And so here's what we're saying. Can you say that back to me? Okay, good. We're on the same page. Perfect. Let's move on. That is that is HR one hundred and one. I often I often will um, coach other managers and leaders and say, if you have a hard conversation, send an email first. Have the conversation right after you send it, yeah. and that way you're giving a person or the other way around. It kind of depends on how a person wants to take in feedback if it's constructive or not. Uh, and so it, it you know it is sort of a it's not a one size fits all, but. Um, very often we'll say sometimes people like to, to read that and then they want to have a conversation about it. Sometimes people would prefer you just be direct with them and then send an email afterwards because what happens in those conversations is they'll listen for about five minutes, their feelings will get hurt, and then they hear nothing else. They're done. So send yeah. an email afterward and say, Hey, I, you know, if you want to talk through this, I just want to recap the conversation. Let me know if you have any feedback and you know, let's let's keep this to what it was and 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 move forward from it. Yeah, I, I love what you said about sending the email ahead of a difficult conversation because so many people react when they hear something negative, whether it's criticism or feedback or just news that they didn't want, and they get emotional right away. And then one-on-one -on -one with the person, they can't then get out of that state. And you can't have an effective conversation with somebody when they're emotional. And so Absolutely. to like let them take the first gut punch, that first emotional reaction alone so that they react however they react it's not coming you know th that doesn't become their personality they can sort of do that them themselves inwardly and then you can have the conversation once they've calmed down a it's, little bit it's more of a strategic you're, you're you're level setting that that strategic playing field if you will if a person can interpret that information they can also develop their response to the information you know and i think the thing that we tell managers is be supportive in person right? So send the information, have the hard conversation, but through your tone and your body language and, and what, what's not necessarily written in that email is how that person moves forward. Going to the managers for a second, because you said managers are, are really coaches. How are you building that? Because that's a skill set too, 
to be a coach and be able to pour into your people and support them and guide them. How are you building that skill within your managers? I am. Uh, so I first started doing it on my team. And if you asked my HR manager, who's who's my right hand, it, it was, if she would come to me and ask me a question, I would respond with a question. How would you do that? And it makes her so mad. It used to make her so mad. <laughs> um, but it got her problem solving on her own. It gave her permission to come up with a creative solution, not just how would I do that? So that that's something that was a pretty easy tactical approach to give other managers. When someone asks you a question, ask it right back. How would you do it? The second thing that we talk about in uh, coaching employees is from a leadership perspective, ask yourself the question, am I the only person that can do this? If the answer is yes, then you do it. If the answer is no, then you delegate it. You are able to coach on things you know how to do. And likewise with employees, they're able to, if they get into management positions, can do the same exact thing. Am I able to do this? Yes. Is someone else able to do this? Yes. Then you delegate it. And I think that sets up good coaching conversations because you're working through familiar problems with someone, which helps a leader determine the more strategic questions to ask to help that person problem solve and essentially grow, uh, learn something new, take on a new challenge, develop their own set of leadership skills. And how many people is any one manager leading? We really don't love more than five direct reports. Now it happens with reshuffling, with attrition, with change in, in strategy. I mean, every every company goes through restructures and, and sometimes they'll do it more than once a year, especially when they're smaller. But we really try to keep it under five because we also ask that managers are having regular one-on-ones, leaders are having regular one-on-ones with their teams. You just can't do that effectively. You can't you don't have time to see above the trees when all of your days are spent putting out fires for 10 direct reports. And so uh, we really try to keep it under five. And, and if it's more than that, let's talk about how we get that, that number lower and quicker than maybe a person has tolerance for. Yeah. And that was why I asked the question, because you had mentioned coaching people to over communicate, really check in a lot. And it just becomes impossible to do effectively if you're managing too many people. Absolutely. And if you're not great at setting boundaries. So as I mentioned before with, you know, is this something that you don't need urgently? Please send me an email about it. And I'll, you know, I have my calendar time blocked for certain days it's team needs and some days it's leadership team needs. And some days it's just administrative things that I need to get off my plate. I think that helps. And, and I've actually communicated that out to the organization just as a, we have a Slack channel called Productivity Hacks. And we use that channel to discuss our productivity hacks. <laughs> Sounds really uh, stupid. <laughs> but um, you know, sometimes the simplest systems work for uh, a lot of people. And so where we can share those things that help us get our job done more efficiently, um, I found people really appreciate. Yeah, no, I'm a nerd for that stuff. I, I love that stuff. So let's, let's dive into that then, because I think boundary setting is an important topic. It's a topic that I see people giving in on a lot. So you said that you time block your days. Are you time blocking the entire day to be just heads down on one specific thing? Or are you time blocking different portions of the day? What does that look like for you? 
Yeah. So I will look at my week on Sunday and I will time block according to what my priorities are and that can change. So I'll have flex time built in. And what I typically do is Monday morning, I have no meetings from 9 to um, 1 p.m. And then the second half of that day is leadership activities. So there's a leadership team meeting. I have a Monday communication to draft. I have action items potentially from that leadership team meeting. Tuesdays are my team day. So our team stand up, I have a manager meeting with my team specifically, and then that's other ad hoc meetings. So it's really uh, supporting my team and then supporting other managers. Wednesday are my one-on-ones. Thursday is no meetings. And then Friday are my regular one-on-ones I have with other members of our leadership team or our senior leadership team. Sounds great. But it works like 75% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I know from all the HR friends that I have that one of the hardest things about HR and probably being a leader or manager in general is all the fires that are being brought to you to put out. And so how do you deal with the reactionary piece of this where people are just knocking on, you know, maybe your virtual door saying, Hey, I've got an issue. Hey, I need to talk. Hey, 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 hey. Versus saying, sorry, Tuesday's a one-on-one day. I will say that most often there are not a lot of people emergencies. Now, someone may think it's a people emergency and maybe I'm saying the unpopular thing, but it is true. Barring gross misconduct, uh, workplace violence, those true fires that you need to put out, most often people do not have emergencies when they need to talk through a people problem. And so typically what I will do is say, I am not available to have this conversation, but we can talk tomorrow. I'll find time on our calendars and we can chat this through. There are times where I need to be flexible with that, say they're on PTO or they need information for me to make a decision. But I'm pretty guarded about those things because I, again, I want to set boundaries. I don't want people to think that I'm not working on other things that are just as important as what they're um, bringing to me. And so it's, I'm, I'm hard pressed to drop everything I'm doing to help someone in their definition of an emergency, if that makes sense. What's their reaction to you when you do that? People know what they're going to get with me. (laughs) Um, You know, if they're frustrated, I don't know. And I often find that if they do, if if I say, I'm not available right now, like, can we talk tomorrow? And they say, I really need an answer by the end of the day, then I'll look at what I can move around or I'll ask, how much time do you think you need to go over this problem? But more often than not, I think just setting the expectation up front is helpful in letting them down easy, which sounds very dramatic, but I'm sure I've made some people upset, but I also think we got the problem taken care of and it was timely and uh, to everyone's satisfaction. So there's, it's sort of a balancing act. Yeah. Cause you're not saying you're not going to help people. Right. You're just saying you're setting the circumstances within which you get to deliver that help. Correct. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a behavior that I have actually worked with my team on. So my, my HR organization is on one side of the house is talent acquisition. The other side is HR operations. And my HR operations team is the hub of all emergency questions that come from the organization. And so 
you know, they're spending a lot of time going from thing to thing to thing, trying to help people. And that's just not scalable. And so we came up with um, a ticketing system. And when people ask my HR ops team a question, they say, is this an emergency? If it's not, then can you please fill out this HR operations request form? And one of our HR generalists will get back to you. But an employee is actually setting their level of, I guess, need or like when they need a response. And so that's helpful for my HR team to be able to prioritize things. And so we use Formstack for it. And so there are, um, there are actually logic questions built into that to help make that self-service. And so employees um, you know, who may have a question that's really just pointing them in the direction of a resource, they're able to get that information through filing that ticket as well. How does that work with other leaders though? So let's say a leader comes to you with a problem. Are you dropping it? Are you changing that system or is it the same system? If a leader comes to us, uh, my HR operations team specifically, uh, we will ask them to fill out the form if it's not an emergency. So even the CEO, if he has a, um, he knows to fill out our HR operations form if he has a request for employee data. Um, if he has a request to make changes to his benefits or his 401k, he knows to use those forms. We, we, I ask leaders to lead by example in that scenario. Um, if it is truly an emergency or it's something that needs to be done really quickly, um, I report to the CEO. So he, he would ask me and I would filter that information down and just say, hey, this is something that we need quicker than um, the ticketing system can allow for. What was the conversation like when you switched to that model? What, what was your conversation like with the other leaders? Because I could see, I, I just, from talking to so many folks out in the business community, like there is a fear that, or, or at least a perception that when somebody who's above you comes to you with something that you need to snap, snap to it and that you don't have the authority to redirect them or tell them no. And I, I see that a lot. And I'm just curious, like, were they just leaders that said, okay, great. Or was there some conversation that you had to massage that? So one of our culture values is approach everyone as a peer, regardless of title. And so when we implemented the HR ticketing system, it was not a brand new process for the organization. Uh, most departments had actually implemented something similar Similar, not a ticketing system, but for example, from a marketing perspective, I need your help with some graphic design. Um, great, fill out our request form and we'll add that to a future sprint. And so the process was not so unfamiliar or dramatic or uh, what have you with the leadership team. And quite frankly, there wasn't any massaging in that word. <laughs> Um, there, there, it wasn't a, a topic of contentious conversation at all. I think my team and others around the organization uh, know when a leader comes to them with a request, the appropriate level of uh, response that they need to have based on that conversation. We're all pretty open with each other. Have you read the book Essentialism? I have. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, like top five every professional should read because yeah. it talks about everything that you're talking about now. And, and the one big takeaway I think from that book is that people are afraid that saying no is going to hurt their trust between them and the other person. And the reality is that saying no in the right way actually builds trust between people because they know it's that no you're with a, a bigger yes in mind. 
Yeah. They know that you are prioritizing. They know that you're thinking critically. They respect that you are doing the right thing at the right time. And so you actually gain a lot of credibility in doing that. And I think that's just a big misconception that I, once I read that book, then you look out and you see people's behavior and you're like, oh, okay, I see how many people are are getting this backwards. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So thank you for going down that rabbit hole with me. One other thing you said about over-communicating. You said, I think on Mondays, you have some weekly communications you have to get out. You're encouraging other leaders to get communications out on a regular basis. Can you talk to that a little bit, what that looks like, why you're doing that? Absolutely. So back in March, when everything shut down and everyone's work world changed, we recognized as leaders through... So we asked the organization how our communication was related to our COVID response and employees felt that we were not communicating appropriately. And so the leadership team sat down and thought, okay, what's a good cadence for us? What kind of information do employees want to hear? What do they need to hear? Um, What will motivate them? And we came up with this framework and it is on Mondays, it is procedural on Wednesdays, it's operational. And on Fridays, it's inspirational. And so when you think procedures, you think HR. So I'm communicating things related to office closures. If, um, for example, it's annual review period or you know our, our virtual conference last year, action items that are required from the entire organization, updates to leave policies, handbooks, those types of things. On Wednesdays, we provide a company health scorecard, and that's delivered by our president. And that includes uh, our revenue, our employee headcount. It includes those sort of SaaS metrics, if you will. Every and then on week Friday, they're getting that. Every week, yeah. Wow. And then and it's and and these communications are threaded. And so for new employees, they're able to look back. That company scorecard's actually delivered in a in a slide deck. And so they're able to go through and look at past slides to see what our growth has looked like over time. Uh, the same for mine. So they're able to see back from March um, exactly what we were doing to respond to COVID and um, resources they may need and things of that nature. On Fridays, it's inspirational. So it's a Friday note from our CEO and it varies in um, subject matter. It can be a haiku (laughs) Um, or something that hits more on a theme from the organization. It can be, you know, a rally or a a shout out to a certain group of individuals that have uh, done something spectacular or (laughs) he shared photos from his fishing trip. Um, You know, it just, it just kind of depends, but really uh, we want people to leave the week feeling inspired and, and also feeling like the CEO cares about them and their well-being and is thinking through how to support the organization in doing that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's I see leaders wrestling with that a lot, like how often they should be communicating what they should be saying. And, and I see some people really diving into that and taking that on. And I see other people saying, well, they don't want to hear from me or, well, maybe we need to figure some of these things out first before we go and communicate them. And I, I'm a big proponent of open communication. 
Agreed. Yeah. That's also one of our culture values default to transparency. And so we think about how we can be the most transparent with our employees because we know what we don't say is worse than what we do. And even if we say, I don't know, that was a really hard hump to get over. I will be very honest. You as a leader believe for your entire career that others look to you because you have it all figured out. And leaders are just like everyone else. We're figuring it out as we go. And right now in this most overused term, unprecedented time, no one knows what they're doing. No one, no one knows. And just to say that to the organization is such a moment of levity and a a breath of fresh air to hear that they don't know what they're doing either. And that's not a bad thing. We all have jobs. We're all making money. We're all, you know, growing as individuals and we're all coming together to, to get this thing done and, and to grow in our relationships with each other. It's okay if they don't know, I know they're trying to figure it out. And I can't tell you the number of people who responded to me and and to the rest of the leadership team, just thanking us for that moment of honesty. Yeah. The power of vulnerability there. It's funny. That was one of the biggest aha moments I had in my career was, you know, I was 25 when I started at Lockton. I was going to meet with people who at the best were about 15 years older than me, you know, and, and on up after that. And, you know, it can be intimidating to walk into that room. And, and the thing that I realized after meeting with a number of different people and seeing how they made decisions and different things was, oh, none of these people know what they're doing. Not that they're doing things bad, not that they're, you know, ignorant or stupid or anything like that, but everybody's just doing the best that they can with the information that they have and the experience that they've been through. And so, you know, sure you get a business executive who has a lot of knowledge and a lot of experiences. So they're making very educated decisions but they're not all right. They're still just doing the best that they can with the information they have. And so if you just try to do the same thing, you really can have really productive conversations with people who are more senior than you are. And that, that just helped take a lot of the pressure off for me. And I I keep that in mind whenever I'm out talking to people. Absolutely. And sometimes when someone comes to me with a question and they want me to give them an answer and I say, I don't know, what would you do? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. I can get, I can take a shot at it, but you know, you're, you're the one that may be able to figure this out a little better because you've got more context than I do. Yeah. So values, you've mentioned values a few times. You've been able to recite them. Oh, that's a value of ours. It's this. How did you go about putting those values together? Have those just existed from the beginning of the organization Or is that something that's been done as part of this new rebrand work? And how do you communicate those? How do you live those? Because it seems like you guys are really living them. How do you do that? To answer the first question, the CEO and I uh, worked on them together. So, um, you know, he in, I want to say 2015, created what we called the culture code and set out this list of values. And we worked together to define those. What do the behaviors look like? What's easy to remember? What are we seeing around the organization traits or, or behaviors and employees that make them really successful versus not? And we came up with this list of, I want to say it was eight. 
And that's a lot of values. And also, um, they were sentences versus a couple words. And so, you know, a few years later, we uh, let me say here in the middle too, we actually use culture values in performance reviews. And so um, that is a way for, because we believe that our culture values are the definition of how you succeed in the organization, you should be thinking about those every day, but also they translate into the job that you have to get done. Are you approaching people as peers? A lot of times you have to communicate upward. And when we communicate an email, that's the subject line in the email. When we recognize people, we have culture value awards. And so we're finding these opportunities in the organization to make them part of our everyday vocabulary, which helps people to remember them. It helps people to act on them. It helps people to recognize them and other people. Now, five years after the initial culture code, we went back and said, this is too much. Let's pare this down. And so we created sort of what I'll call two buckets. One is relationships matter and one is results matter. And there are three values that fall into each of those buckets. And we got rid of uh, a couple of them that we felt were either redundant or they were things that since we've grown as an organization, weren't necessarily as important to model because of the size of the business. Now we're looking at them again uh, with this period of social injustice and how we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion at Formstack, we recognize that that's a gap that we have in our values. We, we may think it and we may feel it, but we don't say it and we don't give it the um, importance that it truly deserves. And, you know, we've been, we didn't just start doing this, right? We've been doing it forever. We, you know, years ago, we're looking at how to increase women in tech and, 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 Every year, we look at how to in, in, increase some underrepresented group in technology. We need to have a culture value around that because it extends beyond just attracting people in the organization. I heard from a friend of mine a few weeks ago, you know, it's great to attract all this diversity and to hire all of these uh, diverse individuals, but what happens when you get them into your organization? So what are you doing to create equitable processes? What are you doing to foster inclusion in your organization. So the CEO and I are working through a new culture code that um, adopts a, um, a diversity uh, value that will, you know, obviously promote and, and add to performance reviews and, and conversations and initiatives that we have for the forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'd like to point there that you've gone back to this several times, that you didn't just set it and forget it, but that it has grown and evolved with the organization and is something that all of the leaders are paying close attention to over time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's important. I, cause, and I would guess you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that the essence of it has stayed the same, but that the way that you express it and the nuance of it has changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Even from a, um, you know, there are seasons in the business where we need to put more focus on relationships and there are seasons in the business where we need to put more focus on the results. Right. Um, and, and we're not afraid to communicate what those seasons are, but each value is just as important as the other. There are just times where one needs to be elevated more than another. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Want to hit one other subject in a conversation, which we emailed a little bit about, um, which is about you specifically. And, and I was curious about this, but 
I was, as I was looking through your LinkedIn, I noticed that there was no alma mater listed. And so you are from our conversations, quite successful, very thoughtful and very pragmatic in the work that you were doing and have risen to the, you know, the top of your field. But either, I guess, did you either not go to college or didn't finish college? And that, like, that's that's a unique thing to see that now. Not that somebody who doesn't go to college can't rise, but you just don't see that story as much. And so I guess I'd be curious just around your story. And then I've got some follow-up questions to it. But I guess if you could just start with kind of your story, your origin story, I guess. Yeah, um, I, you are correct. I did not go to college. Uh, I I went to the School of Hard Knocks. So... I uh, moved from out of my house with my uh, mother when I was 18 and immediately uh, had a series of, of horrible jobs and then found myself uh, working for a hotel. And I, I kind of just, I don't know how to describe it, but it was, I don't want to work a minimum wage job. I want to learn everything I can about this business so that I can be efficient, effective. I can be looked to as a resource. And so I I started as a front desk agent and did room service. I did, I worked with the cleaning crew. I I shadowed the facilities manager. I worked um, every shift because I just wanted to understand how the business worked. And I worked at a long-term stay hotel or short-term stay hotel, sorry. And I had a regular client that would come in every week and stay Monday to Friday. And one day he approached me and and said, Hey, I want to ask you a question and I don't want to sound creepy, but I have been here coming here for a year and I've noticed that I you're always very level-headed. You I never know what's going on in your personal life. You don't bring it to work. And that's a trait I really admire. I'm actually moving here and looking for an executive assistant. I'm wondering if you'd like to do that. And of course my first question is what's it pay? <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was basically double what I was making at this desk job and so I said absolutely. So that started my career. I I I started as an executive assistant and I think that gave me a lot of perspective into business, how executives make decisions, what they need to make decisions, how they relate to other executives, how they build their network, um, those types of things. And, and that gave me experience. And I stayed in executive assisting for about seven years. And I, I, I worked uh, primarily in pharmace- uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, working for Lilly and, and things of that nature. Uh, then I moved into, uh, I found myself in office management and that felt like a natural sort of extension, if you will. It gave me more business operations experience. So I learned how to operate uh, a business. And did you seek that out? Was, or did you kind of just stumble into that? Or were you like, you know what, this is the next step for me? This will sound a little bit arrogant and I apologize. I'm not going to apologize, but we'll I go with confident. I, confident. I knew what I was good at. I knew I was really good with details. I knew that I was unruffled by stress. I'm actually kind of motivated by deadlines. I I like fires to put out. I like variety. And so for me, it felt like, okay, I can now assist an organization versus assist one person. I've learned what I want to learn about the business world. I want to, I want to, I want to get in and work for a business where I feel like 
I'm actually making a difference and I feel like I'm actually valued for a different set of skills. And so I started office managing. Um, and then that led me to Formstack. I started as an office manager and you know started doing the job I had for or have now for the size of business we were and I grew accordingly. So, you know, office manager, HR department of one, I was the recruiter, I was the onboarder. I, you know, sat in on termination meetings and over time just, you know, continued to spot problems around the organizations, broken broken systems, broken broken processes, uh things that structure that needed to be put into place from a people perspective. And so um, Formstack afforded me the luxury to uh, create my own job and to solve problems without asking permission. And I think those behaviors are why I've been able to rise to the level that I am right now, um, but do so with humility and and a true understanding of people because I I didn't go to college and get this set of academia that taught me how to do my job. And that was the only way that I could do it. For me, it was, there's this whole world of real world work experience that I have that I bring into the decisions that I make because I've seen it in business, not a textbook. And so I think that coupled with I didn't go to college. I don't have a I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I'm very open in saying I don't have a college education. I also don't always have the answers, but I know how to support people, how to have compassion, how to do the right thing by individuals. And I've learned that just in my work experiences since I was 18 years old. That's an awesome story. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Again, I've got a thousand questions as you went through that, which we don't have time for. But what is your view then on a college education and the importance of a college education? Because I imagine you're hiring a lot of college educated folks. What does that bring and what doesn't it bring? I think it depends on the job, honestly. Um, I don't... Uh, I'll speak personally and say, uh, I have a 529 for my daughter. If she doesn't want to go to college, then that's fine. She can have that nest egg for something else. But um, I think it's up to the individual and what you want to do with your life. I think I would always want a doctor to go to college. (laughs) I would always want a lawyer to go to college. But I think in terms of looking at applicants for Formstack, I don't... I don't, and I, I, my talent act team, they don't look at college experience. We don't require it. And, and that's not, there are some jobs where it is required or it's preferred or what have you, but that may change as we grow. It may not. I, I don't think that college makes a great person full of talent. I'll, I'll leave it at, at that simple answer. So what in your mind created that drive in you? I had to, (laughs) um, you know, for me, it was some of the the parenting I I received when I was younger. Um, some of it was my father had was very much, you should never, ever have to depend on anyone else for your livelihood. Some of it is just a, um, I'm an Enneagram three, which is an achiever. And so some of it's just in my DNA. I want to get things done. I want to be efficient. I want to make my life better. I want to make other people's lives better. I want to 
achieve greatness, not, not for myself, but for other people around me. And I think that translates into that drive I have. I want people to be happy. I want them to be satisfied. I want them to feel supported. I want to enjoy life. And I think um, some of that is just getting in and, and removing roadblocks and obstacles for other people. Yeah. I mean, I went to college. I had a great college experience. I met great friends. I learned great stuff. It was, it was wonderful. But the most that I use my college education now is actually in running this podcast. <laughs> That's really the thing that has translated the most. Not a lot of what I do professionally matters, but it's like, are you willing to do work? Are you willing to grind it out? Are you willing? Are you curious? Are you trying to solve new problems? Are you trying to expand your own knowledge and skill set? It's like all that stuff. I mean, that doesn't matter whether you went to college or not. It's just, do you have those traits and can you build those muscles? And I think it, I've thought a lot about this. I think on the one hand, there is some just innate d- drive that people have. You know, you said you're an achiever. That's just programmed who you are. But I think that some of it is like mental muscles too. And that you can actually, yeah, like you can train yourself to be more resilient. You can train yourself to stick with things for a long time. You can build grit. Like I I just think with my job, it takes a very long time to build a relationship to a level where somebody's going to hire me. And when I started out, I went 18 months without a single sale and I'm on hundred percent commission. So it was a very daunting period of time, but just suffering through that and sticking through that. Now I'm able to take on other projects outside of work that are long-term in nature. You know, we were talking before this about, uh, art, you being a painter and, and myself liking to write, you know, I decided I was going to write a novel and that took two years. There's, I can tell you, I would not have gotten that done pre working here because I just hadn't built that muscle up yet. So this is a long ramble to just to say that I think you can build those skills. It's just having the having that little bit of drive to go put yourself in those situations. And I think it's life experiences, right? Like you wouldn't yeah. have learned those things had you not had you not been broke for 18 months, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I was broke my, for a lot longer than that yeah, beforehand. But, but yeah, yeah. But, you know, the other part of that too is yeah, I can tell the story about my growth at Formstack, but it's not without periods of discomfort. It's not without periods of not having clear boundaries and working grueling hours. It's not without my share of terrible jobs, other places, um, that I learned some of those things and learned to build those muscles and, and, um, have that resilience. Yeah. I love that. I I've been thinking a lot about, uh, this phrase that I heard. I had a, a gentleman on who was a Navy SEAL for, uh, 20 years. And one of the things that we talked about was a saying that they have, which is always be looking for work, which in their case means always be looking for a bad guy, have your head on a swivel. But, but I just like that because that keeps their teams highly in tune, highly engaged and highly effective, right? Like their job is to execute their mission. And if everyone on that team is looking for work the whole time, then everything gets done and they can be effective. And I've now, as I've had more of these podcast conversations and I've just been paying attention to it, folks like yourself, the way if you go back and re-listen to the story that you just told at every step of the way you were looking for work and I, and that has turned you into the career professional that you are now, at least it seems that way. And so 
I just think that that always be looking for work is just a great mantra for people to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing's ever done. Yeah. 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 You never arrive. That's the other thing. No. That's right, the exactly. that's the like sort of liberating but also disappointing realization yeah. that you get as an adult. Nothing's ever going to be perfect and so you can try and try and try and try and it just you will never ever reach perfection and when you recognize there's beauty in that 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 helps I think that helps your peace of mind to, to know I, you know, I'm going to achieve forever and ever. It's not going to go away, but I'm, I also know that there's no thing that I will achieve that will make me not want to do more. Yeah. I love that. Well, I've got one closing question that I ask just about everybody. What is the purpose of business? Oh, the purpose of business. Yeah. You just told your whole life story. You've got a lot of experiences. You've seen it from a lot of different angles. What in your mind and what, and what it, from your experience is the purpose of business? I think business provides people the opportunity to find what makes them feel whole. And what I mean by that is if you are in a business to cure cancer, if you're in a business to make a lot of money, if you're in a business to solve um, a problem for a large group of people, in business, you have a set of characters that are all working through their own motivations or achieving by their own motivations. And while the business may not, their motivator may not be making a bunch of money, their motivator is helping someone else make a bunch of money. Their, their motivation is how do I make everyone in this organization happy so this business can make a lot of money? And I think business allows for creativity. It allows for an outlet. It allows for all those things. I'll leave it at that. It's wonderful. It's a great answer. Well, Miranda, I appreciate the time today. I appreciate you sharing your story, both your personal story and the Formstack story. Uh, I think there is a ton of stuff in here that people can take away. And I'm looking forward to going back and taking some notes. So really appreciate your time and insight. Thanks so much, O'Brien. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.